0: Thank you. Let's start easing back. Ease down. Ease down. Ease down. We still got some people to go. Anybody got a question here while we wait? Can you just throw something around? TC beers, do you see any negative fruit that's created? In other words, there's negative fruit if you have an abider and a TC beer because there's conflict. One is wanting more from the other. If you got two TC beers, your life's running great. Does your marriage ever feel a little too room maybe? Or too uh, not intense? Is there a spark that's missing? Sometimes TC beers can kind of make life happen, but there's not the woo woo part. But other than that, is there any fruit?
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: So um, that's where I would look, and I'm not going to ask you what it is. But the the, the issue is not that you have, uh, you know, a dance is bad. The issue is, um, given whatever you are, two cc beers, two abiders, God made us to where um, little deficits that we have will produce fruit. And I want to begin there going, oh, wow, well, if that's what's going on in your marriage, let's trace it back to where you need to go. And it might not be a particular interaction dance. It might just be a way you problem solve or something else like that. So, uh, if you can't put your finger on a dance, um, I'd want to back up and look for the fruit and see where that's coming from. Okay? Um, looking for fruit is always um, a first step for me. Um, people will say, um, <coughs> We've gone through a divorce, so I want my son to come see you. And I'm like, Well, what's he doing? And they're like, well, What do you mean? I'm like, Well, is he struggling? It like, doesn't look like it. And I just wanted to see somebody because we're going through a divorce. And I'm like, well, if he doesn't have any bad fruit, we can't assume there's any problem going on yet. Children, especially, are like um, shrimp. You know, how do you know when shrimp are done? They turn pink, okay? So it's like, are these shrimp done or not? Well, are they pink? And children are very much like that. Is a child struggling? Well, are they bearing fruit? Is there going to be a symptom? And, and likewise, in our marriages or our relationships, People can say, well, you know, um, I went through this hard time, so I ought to get in therapy. Well, I don't know, do you have fruit? So I often look for a uh, symptom or fruit depression, anxiety, out of control behaviors, conflict, whatever to be the guide for me as to where to start looking for what um, character deficit might be missing. But that's kind of talking shop, but we're killing time while people come back. We've got enough back, let's start. <clears throat> All right, one more, um, one more Chris Rock. Chris Rock says marriage is so hard. Marriage is so hard that Nelson Mandela got a divorce. Nelson Mandela spent 27 years in an African prison, eating prison food, solitary confinement, and hard labor in the African sun. And he gets let out from prison, and he goes back home to his wife. And six months later, he gets a divorce. It's like, I can't handle this. This is too (laughs) hard. All right, so um, I hope something that I've made very clear to you as we've been going along is, you know, whether you're married or dating, welcome to the Struggling Humans Club, people who are screwed up, incomplete, fallen, and broken. Uh, Let me tell you a little about our organization. Number one, if you're not a member of our club, you're a member of another club, (laughs) and we said that just like the gospel marriage has to begin from this position that says um, I need mercy and growth I'm broken and screwed up and we say that to God real easy can we say that to each other right? and we've been talking about that growth we just talked about intimacy and we said the two biggest pieces in understanding marriage in a sense are can I be close to you but also, can I be me and you be you? Can I have the identity piece too? Can we have mutuality where we both matter? Now, regarding the issue of identity of being me, we could talk about a lot of things. Um, what does it look like to start learning who I am? Was it? Uh, how can I grow in my ability to say no? Um, how do I understand stewardship? That it's not selfishness; it's stewardship. So, a lot of directions. Where I want to go, though, and I think it's most relevant to dealing with marriage and dating, is the issue of conflict and the potential of fighting. Because if you are going to exist and me is going to exist, we're going to have conflict. All right? In other words, if y'all agree on everything, one of you is unnecessary. So, point one, conflict's not bad. Conflict is actually necessary. Conflict basically happens when you have a relationship with two people in it, both of whom have brains, all right? There's been a billion-dollar government grant that um, revealed that um, relationships are always more difficult when they have two people in them. (laughs) That's your your, uh, tax dollars at work. But legitimate conflict is basically how two Whole individual people make sense of not being the same person, okay? You know those people who say, oh, we never fight. I'm like, really? Only well, one of you is asleep or a complier or you're both just too nice. And that's going to ultimately catch up with you. Two alive people are going to have conflict. And when we resolve that conflict, it actually creates more intimacy. I was talking to this guy a while back that he had fell in, fallen in one. She was perfect. We were wonderful. We had so much fun. We've been going all these cute dates and having just, oh, we just get along and it's so common. And we just stay up hours every night talking and then smooching. And it's wonderful. And we just have this great time. And what do you think, Doc? And I said, it's wonderful. I think it's time that you've had a fight. And he said, well, what, a fight? Why? What do you mean a fight? And I said, well... You're you're getting the intimacy, closeness, kumbaya part of your relationship down. Now you've got to get these differentness, separateness, individuality thing down. And he says, well, just get along. We don't don't ever fight. I'm, Well, then pick one. You know, find (laughs) a fight, pick it, you know. (laughs) It's like the seraph says to Neo in the Matrix, how can you ever really know someone until you fight them? You cannot, okay. (laughs) So conflict is this good thing. It's actually this bonding thing. How do I matter and you matter? All right? As we said last night, you codependence. you heard it here. Conflict's good, all right? But that's not the real problem. That's not the plot twist. The real plot twist is this. You have a disagreement and you feel like your spouse isn't getting you. Or, you know, they, they, they you don't know, feel like they're letting you matter. Or they've left their clothes on the floor again. Uh, Norma cleans up behind me. I mean, like, right behind me. Like, I'll, I like to cook, so I'll, like, be chopping an onion or something on the counter, and I'll set the knife down to grab another onion, and I swear if things clean and in the knife block, I'm like, where'd my knife go? You know? I tease her that when I get in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, I come back, and she's made up my side of the bed. She's like, <laughs> Okay, basic conflicting kind of stuff. You need them emotionally and they're not there for you. You need them sexually and they're not there for you. Or they're telling you how to drive. You know, the marriage killer. <laughs> basic conflict stuff. Alright, so, that's not unusual, but instead of working through the problem, here's the plot twist. Instead of working through the problem or asking for what you need in an adult way, <laughs> um, you get that fed up feeling and you jab out. Or you just snap out them. Or the room gets icy like, you know, when the Harry Potter Dementors come in. And it's gonna, you know the feeling, right? And your hurt turns into anger, or your fear turns into anger. What anger is, is a defense against vulnerable feelings, by the way. Your anger is a way to not feel hurt, or to not feel vulnerable, um, or to not feel fear. And all of a sudden, your fear turns into anger, or your hurt turns into anger, and you attack them, and you hurt back. And what was a conflict is now a fight. All right? That's what we're going to talk about first. So point one, conflict, good. Point two, fight, not good. Right? Fights and conflicts are different things. And fights are what we have to talk about first, because as long as a conflict can stay a conflict, two people who disagree and are working on solving the problem... Then we can deal with that, you know, no big, all right? But once it becomes a fight, you're not trying to solve anything anymore, Cinderella.
1: Uh-huh.
0: You're hurt and you're angry and you're trying to win. And old Mr. Problem, you know, who originally started this conflict, what are we going to do with XYZ? He's sitting over in the corner all by himself and nobody's even paying any attention to him. It's like the last kid picked in soccer, you know, by himself. And that's why you have the same fight since college, okay? Because we end up having a fight and we never actually resolve the problem. So, what I want to do this morning is sort of deconstruct fighting and conflict and slow them down. They're, by definition, these complex, flowing, nuanced dances with all this subtlety and emotional reactivity. And I want to sort of break them apart and sort of slow them down, like the Matrix, and kind of look at them and see what's going on, and and try to get practical. I want you to have some frontal load tools to deal with these sort of emotionally reactive events like fighting. And I'm going to get real practical about this. I'm going to I want to give you steps, um, something you can do differently this week, because when you're in a fight, all you're thinking out of is your midbrain, which we'll talk about, and I want you to have some frontal lobe stuff, all right? So, I'm going to try to get real practical. danger of that is it's going to first sound oversimplified. This is not miracle cure, alright? This isn't raise up your spouse in the way that they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. That's what I'm talking about. But, I'm shooting for some principles and some themes, and as you hear them, you're going to be going, yeah, yeah, but what about so-and-so, so-and-so. And I want you to say that, because then we can come back to and Q&A and your questions will help me put more meat on these bones. Get it? All right? Now again, as I've said a couple of times, I'm assuming, and this especially in this talk, I'm assuming that both of you are at least somewhat repentant. In other words, both of you are at least somewhat saying, yeah, I don't want to fight either, let's work this out. Okay. As opposed to the unrepentant spouse who's like, I'll talk to you any way I want. Shut up. Get away with me from all that psycho babble. oh can't tell me what to do. That person uh, we will talk some right now about how to deal with an unrepentant spouse a little bit. We can do it a lot more in QA. I got a um, a Google Voice question that's a good question about an unrepentant style from a spouse, but there's a science to dealing with them, and we'll talk some about that. But otherwise I'm gonna assume at least you're both open to growing in this particular talk, not fighting. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk first about how do we diffuse the fight? Like once the, the bomb is blown up, how do you put it back in its casing? I want to talk some about like what's going on. I want you to be able to get some perspective about what's happening in your fight to get it back up and observe some. I want to talk about how do we address the hurt? Because you're going to have to address the hurt you created. Sorry. We're going to talk about also how to actually go back and resolve That original conflict, the problem that started all of this. So the first rule of Fight Club is, you've got to talk about Fight Club. Alright? We're going to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Step one. What's the first thing to do when the fight bomb hits? Once you realize that you are fighting, you know, when you're saying those things you always wanted to say. (laughs) Step one is, good time out. You know how you put your kids in time out? yourself in time out you have some experience with this what that means is somebody says okay i am really ticked I need, to, I need to stop i need a break i anything i'm about to say is not going to help or it means saying whoa 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 that felt hurtful i think i need to back off a minute okay or it means saying look we need to take a break i think we're losing control in other words, the first step is just stop the madness. This is so super underused. How many couples I, I, I talked to is like we, you know, we fought till one thirty in the morning. I'm like, oh my gosh! After <laughs> ten minutes, you're going downhill. There isn't much further you can go. Super underused. We don't just stop the madness. Nothing you do when you are triggered here is going to be helpful. All right. Let me tell you why this is necessary. When you have a fight and you feel that adrenaline rush hit. When you feel that flood, that what did you say, or I can't believe, or like one woman in my office, her husband says something, and she just slowly starts turning. <laughs> I'm like, Dude, run! Yeah! <laughs> Anyway, when you feel that jolt, you know when things are getting ugly. The first thing to do is not do what comes naturally, okay? Because <laughs> when we encounter frustration and hostility and yuck and pain in a relationship, what happens is we start triggering your like your amygdala and your hippocampus and hypothalamus and you know, all that brain stuff. And anyway, back to your midbrain, you know, your reptile brain. right, Your caveman brain. Where your level of sophistication is like, you know, run from T-Rex or kill him. That's kind of as sophisticated as you get. Right? In other words, we go in that level of fight, flight, or freeze. Those are kind of our only options at that level. Which in a marriage means I withdraw, or I nag, or I attack, or I criticize, or I bring up something you did 10 years ago. Or, you know, I compare you to somebody I know you hate. Or, you know, whatever. Tools of the trade in a fight. You're just like your mother. You know, whatever. The goal being, correct me if I'm wrong, to see which one of us is right, which one of us wins, which one of us is the good guy, which one of us is the bad guy. Make you get it. right, Regular crowd. Huh? In other words, we do the same things with our spouse that we do with a Coke machine when it doesn't give us what we want. I mean, think about it. What do you do when you put money in a Coke machine and a Coke doesn't come out? You start banging on it and flicking the change return. You get more aggressive, and that's what we do with the fight. And that's lots of fun until 1.30 in the morning. But think about it strategically. What are some problems with a fight? Some problems that timeout will help. Number one, timeout is going to help stop the hurt that fights create. In a fight, you say things you don't mean. In a fight, once you're triggered at caveman brain, um, it's law of the jungle, man. It's eat what you kill. It's win at all cost, right? And that is destructive. That part is a child part of you, and that child needs to be stopped. So timeout is going to actually set limits on that child part of us. When we are in a fight, we're really um, we're too, being two six-year-olds. Let me explain what I mean here. I tell couples this all the time in my office. Um, I, I tell them this: uh, there are really four people in your marriage. There's big you and little her. I mean, big you and little you and big her and little her. Okay. And I, I draw this in squares now, because the first time I ever did it, I wasn't really thinking, and I drew it in circles. It's an eighth grade boy joke. So it's squares. okay? It's
2: squares.
0: Okay. So here's your marriage. You two get along just fine. How was work? It was good. I'm upset. Let's work it out, right? But then you say something like, "Oh, we're having meatloaf again," and it goes to little her, and she's like, no, "That's good enough for him. He's rejecting me. He's sick of me. He doesn't think I'm good." You know, and I've been working all day, and so she says, "Yeah, it's meatloaf. You don't like it? You can find something else to eat." And you're like, "I've been working all day. She doesn't appreciate it." And before you know it, you two little guys are killing each other, all right? Now, what people don't understand is you two probably get along just fine. you got to get the little six-year-olds under control, all right? Which kind of brings up that question, you know, is what your spouse says when you're fighting what they really mean? Mm-hmm. You know that question? They're like, why don't you want kids anyway? You're like, whoa, what? Yeah. <laughs> they been like, happiness. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's their six-year-old alright, they think like kids that part of us thinks like a kid and must be stopped okay kids think these absolute ultimate global you know, nobody likes me, everybody hates me kind of ways, but it's not what they mean that's not their true self, that's their six-year-old self okay, so marriage, conflict, slight fireworks do not attempt without adult supervision um, and we need a timeout to do that Step. Um, reason one, because people get hurt by cave men and cave girls and we gotta stop that, Right. And we're going to have to address that hurt later. We're going to have to. Right? Second reason timeout is helpful. The goal of fighting is wrong. What's the goal of fighting? The goal of a conflict should be mutuality. You matter and I matter. What's the goal of a fight? Well, the fight's to win. Now, I don't want to be insensitive or anything, but that's stupid. That's a bad goal. I mean, think about it. Best case scenario is you win, and now you are married to a loser.
1: <laughs>
0: and they're going to make you pay for winning somewhere down the line, right? I mean, how many win-lose relationships? Think about real life. How many win-lose relationships do you know that last very long? I mean, if you go to Starbucks and they're charging $19.50 for a cappuccino, that's a big win for them, lose for me. I'm not going to go there. I'm going go to uh, I'm gonna go to Chimera. I'm going to go to Chimera. I might go there anyway. Um, uh, if I go to Starbucks and I start stealing those little cups from behind the counter, you know, that's a win for me, lose for them. That probably won't work very long either. Mm-hmm. Win-lose relationships don't work in real life, okay? But we do it every day in our marriage. That's crazy. Why do you think that? We ought not to... And we live in that kind of win-lose position, right? So win-lose doesn't work. Uh, Playground principle is this. Hitting the kid who has the ball might get you the ball, but it's not going to get you anybody to throw it with, right? So winning's not that good. So timeout. Even if you don't know what to do good, just don't do the bad. By the way, timeout is not, I'm out of here, jerk face, timeout. (laughs) Nor is timeout silent treatment passive aggressive. Like, what? Just in timeout? For twelve days. You know. <laughs> it's not timeout. I-, I was talking about this at a church in California and this woman comes up to me afterwards and says, There's no way I'm using timeout. That'll just give him a chance to escape. <laughs> you go, oh, okay, I'll honor your timeout. You know, nine hours later, he's on the 19th hole. Like, like, uh, I need a little more timeout. <laughs> so you do need to re-engage. I don't need more than 20 minutes timeout. That's about how long it takes physiologically for that adrenaline to metabolize a little bit.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, you can call timeout on yourself. You can say, I think I need a moment. Wait a minute. Remember, this is golf, not tennis. Remember from last night? Um, I was working on a, a conference a couple of years ago. It was an adolescence conference. Parenting conferences are fun and easy. This church wanted an adolescence conference. How many of y'all got adolescence? All right. It's a different universe, right? Well, it's just that hard to write a conference on it. And I was really struggling with how to do it. And I was upstairs in my man cave trying to figure it out. And I figured it out. I got it. And I go tumbling down the stairs to my wife. And I'm like, I got it. I figured it out. I know I'm going to do the, the adolescent conference. And she goes, oh, okay. Now, six-year-old me goes, oh, well, thank you for your support. <laughs> you said you me really made me feel so much confidence and satisfaction that I had figured this out. Thanks for your support. And inside, I have had enough therapy where I'm like, you know, pop the circuit on that. Whatever you do, don't say that. Go to timeout. John, you need to go to timeout. Whatever you do, do not say anything now. And I turned around and I walked upstairs to the man cave. More on that later. <laughs> but if you don't know what to do good, just stop the bad. Super underused. Watch it. Go to timeout and start asking, as we'll talk more in a minute, why did that hook me so much? What did this mean? What do I need? I need to get under the skin of that six-year-old and find out what the deal is, what's pushing his buttons. Half of your conflicts are about your immature childish needs. And the more you can time out, the more you can figure out what they are. Now, mine was pretty simple in this case. I'm up there pouting, and I'm thinking, okay, John, what do you need? And I thought, well... I guess the simple answer is I need to know if she cared about my conference, right? And I thought, well, you're a mental health professional. Why don't you go ask her? (laughs) So I went downstairs and I said, can I ask you a question? And she said, yeah. And I said, do you care about my conference? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, I came down here and I was all excited and you seemed very nonplussed. And she's kind of like... Didn't feel like you cared about it at all. Did you care about my conference? And she said, "Oh, I had just got off filming my mother. Remember her mother? Who's sick?" I went. Everything's not about me. What? <laughs> it wasn't me. She had something in her life besides me. Time out gives you the space to start asking those kind of questions. Okay. Now let me get honest with you here for a second. If you're like me. You're not gonna want to go to timeout. In other words, it feels good to be mean, right? In other words, I don't want to go to my man cave and think about this. I kind of like making my point with my finger in her face. I kind of like not letting her get away with it, you know? And I'll tell you something that's gonna happen. If you stop yourself at that point and you make yourself time out. It'll feel bad. Why does it feel good to be mean? I'll tell you one reason. It feels good to be mean when we're angry. Because it literally, and if I can say this literally, figuratively, literally, it literally takes some of the meanness and shame and yuck and garbage that I have inside and dumps it on you. It's like I have 10 pennies worth of yuck inside of me and meanness and hurt and shame. And if I shame you, I cannot believe you treated me like that. If I degrade you, it literally takes seven of those 10 pennies and dumps them on you. And now I only have three. I feel better. We literally can get rid of our junk onto somebody else. It feels good to be mean. And if you take a time out, that junk stays inside of you and you're going to have to find a different way to manage it rather than dump it on them. Now, if you have a spouse who loves to dump, you don't have to accept the pennies. You can be teflon and they can say, I cannot believe that you would do something so stupid. And you can say, wow, I don't think I am going to step in that rat's nest. This conversation's over. I'm not going to even engage you if you're going to talk to me like that. And you set a limit, and you create a timeout, and you get out of the way. Or you say, I am sorry you can't believe it, but do get to know me. I am so broken and fallen and living in God's grace, and you don't get to take that from me. In other words, it takes two people to play this game. And if somebody wants to dump their garbage on you, you do have power and responsibility, we can talk more about it, to be a good, powerful limit setter toward it. Now, what happens if you do that is the pennies stop in the midair and come back on them, all right? And now they're left with their junk, okay? But you're not going to like going to timeout. but it's good for you. Now, secondly, as I'm just alluding, you can stop, you can set time out on your spouse, Okay? If they're being a jerk. This is very relevant to that unrepentant spouse I keep alluding to. Norma will say to me sometimes, we'll be having a little tip, and she'll go, did you mean that to be ugly? Did you mean that to be mean? Because we were just having an interaction, albeit a heated one, but it felt at that point like you really sort of wanted to jab. Was that a jab? Because if it was, I'd rather wait and talk later. Um, (coughs) So, and all of a sudden, I'm left with this very interesting choice. And I either will go, yeah, I'm a Aviyadah. You got me. You're right. Or I can clarify, "No, I don't think I'm meant to be a Jeff I can see. But anyway, she causes me to have to step back and look. Okay, I think that's a very interesting boundary set on an underpinning person. It protects you. It calls them out. But it also creates a situation, the only place that... A, an unrepentant person is going to grow as if they face limits. Two kinds of people in the world. The first question God asks when He meets somebody is are they repentant or unrepentant? Are they humble or are they, are they uh, want to be in control? And what do repentant people need? They need love and restoration and, and support and forgiveness and humility and welcoming and witness. What do unrepentant people need? They need to become repentant people. And usually in God's universe, that happens through some sort of limit setting. When God encounters unrepentant people, he does things like send them to Babylon. Right? So, if you have a friend or a spouse or a parent who walks in the house and goes, What are you thinking? Parking like that, the knuckle-headed victim spouse is going to go, Well, I parked like that because I thought you you to get the garbage out later on. You do that and you will live in misery forever mm-hmm. and be wondering, was that person so mean to me? Well, you just gave them permission to by answering their question. What I want you to say is, whoa, I don't think I must to do that, coaches. I'm not going to answer any parking questions right now, not that come like that. That sounds real attacky. If you want to have a conversation about the parking, let's do it. In other words, you are the steward of how you were treated. And you'll be treated as poorly as you permit. And I see so many victim spouses have a lot to say about that mean old offender spouse. They do this and they do that. But the moment you respond to why you parked like that, you're giving them tacit permission. I, John Cox, give you permission to talk to me like that because see, I talk back and I actually answer your question. Don't answer the question, talk about the style. Whoa, bang. who put a bee in your bonnet about the parking. <clears throat> Not going there. Notice again, a good limit is always a rule about me. I'm not saying quit yelling. You, you drink too much. Quit drinking. A good limit is I don't talk to inebriated people. A good limit is God, that felt kind of escalated. I, can we take a breather? Okay. Again, that not only takes responsibility for protecting you from a hurtful, controlling, underpinned person. It's incredibly godly for them. What do underpinned people need in God's universe? They need limit settlement. Is the only way they will grow. Again, another thing I see never talked about well in marriages. All right? this is what helps build that fourth eye of being able to move. That reactive person lives out of their caveman brain, and it pushes us to have to start thinking that fourth eye. All right. So few spouses, so few victim spouses, do that. I'll have people go, "You wouldn't believe it. Last night, she just stood there and yelled at me for four hours." <laughs> and I always just kind of like, "Look at their shoes. Like, what are you doing?" Well, I was making sure you had feet. I was like, "Wonder why you didn't leave
1: after four minutes? You sat
0: there for four hours." Anyway, way underused. Being a powerful warrior against a hurtful person, the whole misunderstanding and to turn the other cheek piece has given people a lot of problems with that. That's not what that means. All right, number three, timeout's going to give us time to think. It's going to pull us into the fourth eye. Remember, you're back there in your little reptile brain thinking like a caveman. <clears throat> this is going to give you a chance to sort of move forward. The only thing that's going to work us out of a fight is for us to be able to think. We got to move up from that midbrain to the frontal lobes, talking executive functioning people, All right? Golf, not tennis. And we start thinking, like I did in my man cave. What do I need? What does she need? What was that about? What's really going on here? Why is this triggering me so much? And timeout's going to buy you that time. We are smart up here. We are dumb back here. Okay. And timeout is going to give us a chance to start thinking. Alright? You know how Obi-Wan says to Luke? Luke, trust your feelings. Alright? Obi-Wan's wrong. Alright? Trust your feelings? You're crying out loud. That's why he lived on tattooing by himself. You can't maintain a relationship with a woman thinking like that. Trust your feelings, for crying out loud. Ridiculous. Alright, now let's use those frontal lobes. We've worked so hard to get up two, all right? What's that thinking going to give us? Step number two, we're going to go bird's eye. And what that means is, like we said, marriage problems are not linear cause and effect. They are more of a cycle and a dance. And one of the most powerful things you can do in your marriage or your dating or your fighting is to begin learning those dances and start observing what it is you guys are doing as a couple, all right? In other words, a huge way to begin putting back together a fight is for one or both of you to be able to step outside of what's going on and ask, what are we doing? I do A, which makes you do B. We're doing it again, Sherlock. What's going on? And I call that going bird's eye. Hugely powerful force in a marriage. A lot of the value of marriage counseling or of conferences even if your therapist is a knucklehead, is it's really helpful for us to have somebody outside of our system to look back at it. Um, it gives you that perspective and that perspective on yourselves, that objectivity is power. When our kids were little, Norm and <coughs> I used to have what we bird's so eye later on called the whose day is worse for. But for a while we would do it like this. I'd come in from work Assuming my I had a bad day posture, kind of snuck over with my code in my computer case. And I'll walk in and go, hey, Uh in a tone that implies you should really appreciate how hard I've been working all day taking care of the family problem is that the source of my adoration is blankly slumped over the stove cooking something I probably don't want for supper. And her (laughs) response is, hey, would you set the table in a tone that says, welcome back from your eight-hour vacation. (laughs) And my response is, okay, but I need to rest just a minute. Which is my way of saying, how could you possibly ask me to do something? You've just been riding around in a minivan all day. (laughs) (laughs) So we go back and forth, and the repeat fight is, who's going to get appreciated here? You know, who's worked harder today? You know? (laughs) Hear the two ticks and no dog? Mm. Hear the win-lose? We learn in here? So what Birdseye does is at some point backs up and observes this. Hopefully we take a time out. we start looking. Burnside's going to ask two questions. Number one, what are we doing? And number two, what am I doing? So, number one, what are we doing? First thing, hopefully, after we've timed out, Norm and I can back up. This is going nowhere, right? And we can start asking, what are we doing? We've done it enough. We ought to be able to talk about it. One or both of us can start to say, okay, look, what's happening is, I think I have, like, this sense, like, you don't really appreciate our heart, I'm working and so I try to out-pitiful you. And obviously that feels like I'm saying to you that you aren't working your life at hard. You know? She's like, yeah, I know. You've been, like, helping people all day. I've been in the sick room and the pediatricians. And I'm like, right. You know? And we're trying to out-pitiful each other. That just seems dumb. In other words, you hear the bird's eye, the back up, and look at it. What are we doing? Okay? So bird's eye, number one, is sort of the ability for both of us to kind of get off the tennis court, hitting balls back and forth, and get up in that line judge chair and watch the game and go, what is what is it we're doing? What's going on? You feel like I undermine you with the children, so you criticize me, which really ticks me off, which kind of probably makes me undermine the children more. Wow, we keep doing that thing. Isn't that interesting? Now notice the key word there, we. Just that word shifts the balance. Bites are all about you. Nuh-uh, you. no uh you. And now I'm going we. What are we doing here? Now you're on the same team. You're both up in the line judge chair looking at the game. What are we doing here, all right? Les Parrott calls this having a conflict post-mortem. In other words, you back up and you kind of go, yeah, when you said that, it made me feel stupid, so I attacked you, and that's why I did this. And that's going to so hedge your bets for the next time, right? Because there will be a next time. To quote Yoda again, there will be, there will be. (laughs) So, can we go fly on the wall about that? Um, If y'all can't get that objective together on your own, that's your sign to get other eyes. All right, Your body of Christ people, or people are always asking, how do you know we ought to get in therapy? Well, if you can't get that objective to back up and look and say, what are we doing? Then you need some other eyes. And that might be your pastor, or an elder, or close friends, or a therapist. Okay, but there's your sign. I know people are ready to quit therapy when they can do that objectivity on themselves. They say, well, we started getting in a fight last night, and Roger here said, whoa, 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 we're about to do that dumb thing we do. And I went, yeah, you're right, we caught it. And you have that objectivity. It's like, you know, we have the confetti and the farewells. So what are we doing? Now, number two, this is the the hard one, but this one's gold. I love this one. What's going on with me? You know that sense when a fight's gotten, like, way bigger than it ought to have gotten? You know, when my reaction to what you said or my response is way bigger than it should have been? That sort of sense where two plus two is equaling seven? You know, your spouse is like, whoa, like, that just blew up a lot bigger. Well, after I've timed out, I need to start kind of asking, where's the extra three coming from, right? That's the fourth I again, all right? Maybe it's a way you wounded me in the past and never resolved it. Maybe it's a a way that you continue to act that I've never been able to, you know, get you to stop. Maybe it's developmental. Maybe this is about your history. I tell people all the time, yeah, you're mad at somebody. I'm not sure it's your wife, All right? And that sits inside in your little inner child or your inner is kind of running things. I call these legacy hurts or legacy triggers. And they sort of sit in the background some way you've hurt me in the past or some way my dad always treated me or something. And they sit in the background until we're disagreeing about car insurance. And then it's like boom, Hiroshima. And we're like, whoa, why did that blow up like that? Right? So Norma wrote a book on Camp Soto. Do y'all know Camp Soto? Anybody? The girls camp down in Alabama, and her grandmother started so she wrote a book on it years back, and for a season of our life, all she did was write the book, uh, which is, um, I think we'll talk about that later. Anyway, really, one day she gave me a chapter and asked me to edit it. Like, well, you look through this chapter. So I did. I got the chapter, and I to do it, I go to my thoughts, and, you know, drew arrows and lines and little comments on the side, and I came back, and I said, here, I edited your chapter, and she said, uh, okay,
1: thanks. <laughs> and I'm like...
0: <laughs> nothing. And so, I get ticked. I'm like... You're welcome. You know, <laughs> thank you. And she's like, are you okay? And I said, no. Nah. But let me think what's going on. And I took a time out. Because again, I was about to be up. And I sat there and I thought, what is, what is the deal? What is, what's going on? And I figured it out. I needed some adoration. I needed her to go, oh my gosh, you, you really worked hard on this. Thank you. This is great. I was mad. I wanted to go, you know what people pay for my consultation? You know. <laughs> and I realized it was, it was little boy me going, I made an A, mom. And mom doesn't stick it on the refrigerator, Okay, <laughs> right? I felt hurt and, and, and put down and not appreciated. And that, I felt that. That was like little kid junk. That was like between me and my parents. And so I came back and said, I figured it out. I do have a problem, but it's not with you. I said, I, I do want to ask, did you appreciate my doing that with the book? She said, I really did. And I said, it would feel good to me in the future if you would be a little more oblivious about that. But I'm going to respect where you are on it. My anger was about my parents, not you. Because I wanted adoration. So, no harm or foul. But anyway, I had to do some serious work there about what was going on with me. Otherwise, I'm going to take this little boy longing to be celebrated and dump it on my wife. Get it? If you can't do that on your own, time to go to your growth places. Time to go to your safe body of Christ people. Time to go to your therapist, whatever. Alright, so we've timed out. We've gone bird's eye. We're looking at what we're doing. We're looking at what I'm doing. Step three. We've got to address the hurt. You know, all this yucky fight junk we've been doing is going to hurt somebody. And one of the differences between a fight and a conflict is that a fight is about hurt. And if you don't fix the hurt, you're not going to go anywhere. Alright? Think about it. What does hurt mean? If you hurt me, I had it kind of hard to define. Some sort of diminishment? Kind of a shame? Sort of like you don't matter? Sort of like uh, something cutting? Um, I criticize you? Is that getting close to it? Does that feel? Anybody else got a word for what hurt me? Somebody's hurtful to me at a party and you just stand there and don't defend me? That hurts. You get it? But you know what it feels like when you feel it, right? Okay? Secret of the universe. One of the reasons people have problems resolving conflict and making a fight in good is because most people have no idea what to do with hurt once they've caused it. We don't know how to repair it, we barely know how to define it, as you just saw. And that's a problem. Because until you resolve the hurt that's gotten created, you ain't going nowhere, boy. All you're going to do is live in the hurt. The issue is no longer about the finances or the in-laws. The issue is the hurt. And I now not only have one problem, the original problem, or two problems, we're now fighting. I have three problems. We're now hurt. So we're three generations away from the original problem. And if we don't deal with the hurt first, we're never going to get out of this. All right.
2: What happens if it's been so old, so long, they don't even know what they're hooding about?
0: Can we touch on that in QA? Sure. You'll be my first question. Okay. <laughs> all we're doing when we're trying to hurt is to make you stop hurting me, and all we're trying to do in the hurt is to hurt you back, or to get you to care that you've hurt me, and we go on and on and on. And oh, by the way, remember old original Mister Problem? He's still sitting over here, and nobody's paying attention to it. All right. So, if we're ever going to get out of this, we've got to resolve the hurt first. Now, let me ask y'all once you've been hurt by someone, what is it that you need in order for that to feel better? Forgiveness. Forgiveness? An apology?
3: Validation.
0: Validation. Good. I'm going to summarize that by what ultimately addresses hurt. I'm going to call understanding and hearing you get it. you care. The only thing, hear me here, the only thing that ever makes hurt get better is to see and hear and experience that the other person gets it, that they care, that they understand, that they hear me, or at least they're trying. And if we're not hurt, we will hold on to it forever and have to have somebody else ultimately help us get beyond it. But we'll bring it up years later in the marriage, you know, like, this is like on our honeymoon that time, you know, and you're like, oh. And that's all going to happen unless you're understood. Now, this is not complicated. It happens all the time in your regular life. Think about it. You're driving down the interstate and some guy cuts you off and he almost kills you both, and you're like, oh my gosh, what an idiot. But then you look and you see these looks in his rearview mirror and he kind of goes like that. And you kind of go, oh, okay. He knows he's an idiot. It's alright. <laughs> <laughs> Not a problem. You
2: know, what just happened?
0: He made this acknowledgement of, I get it, I really screwed up. And you're like, thank you. There's a get it. There's a validity. There's an acknowledgement, alright? So, basically, we need a mirror wave in your marriage. Alright?
1: in other words we need to be able to
0: communicate to our spouse that at some level I get it at some level I can try it on I can see that that it hurt you it's valid in some way this is where we get the psychobabble term validation because it's like I see there's some validity to the fact that you're hurt I get it, I hurt you, okay and this doesn't mean we're agreeing with them we're not saying we're the bad guy or we're wrong, we're not throwing the match we're just trying it on that I get how what I did hurt you, The only way out of this box, okay? I'll tell you a story about me and Norma, in which this is an issue. Um, Norma has various little uh, physical problems and needs a doctor to just keep her up to date on her medicine. It's nothing serious, but she just needs to sort of stay up to date. And her doctor retired. So she asked me, she says, who do you think I ought to go see? And I said, oh, I got the, this is doctor at the hospital. We park in the same park, part of the parking lot. And um, she's just super cool, super, super um, gifted. Um, Dr. Whitney, I'll call her. And um, I said, y'all see Dr. Whitney. And so she calls Dr. Whitney. It's like going to be next June before she can get in. And she's like, I can't get into Dr. Whitney. It's like till next June. I said, that's not a problem. I see her in the parking garage all the time. I'll ask her. So like two weeks go by and I never see her. I get there and she's either already there or I get there and she's nowhere to be found and I need to go to work so I never see Doctor Whitney. So Norma tells me one day she goes, "I really need a doctor." And I said, "Okay, I tell you what, I'm going to find Doctor Whitney for you. I'm going to get like a granola bar and some orange juice and I'm going to get to work really early and I'm just going to sit in the car and stop <laughs> her. <I'm gonna> wait. <laughs> 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 you need her help? I'll do this for you." So I go to work and sit there listen to the radio. Dr. Whitney pulls up. And I get out and I'm like, oh my gosh, Dr. Whitney, what a surprise, you know? (laughs) I tell her about Norma. She goes, yeah, problem. Tell her to call so-and-so at the office. Tell her I talked to you. She gets her in next week. So the next week comes. Norma and I are out to eat at a restaurant. And I'm like, oh, by the way, you saw Dr. Whitney today. How'd it go? She said, oh my gosh, she was great. And she loved that story about you stalking her in the parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> I said you told
1: her that. <laughs> <laughs> she, yeah, she thought it was so her <laughs> that. All
0: right. Talk about time out. <laughs> <laughs> This restaurant is one we frequent, and it has a bench out front in front of the front door. And every time I buy that bench, I think, that's where I sat on Dr. Whitney. <laughs> <laughs> I left the restaurant. I was angry, I was humiliated, I wanted to say, this was not your story to tell. I husbanded you. I went out on my limb to take care of you, and you threw me under the bus. I was enraged. <clears throat> And she's like, well, I mean, she thought it was cute. And I'm like, I don't want her to think I'm cute. <laughs> I'm a colleague of hers, and I just was so angry. And I held on to it. I couldn't let like, go of it. Weeks went by. Norma said, okay. Alright? Then I found myself like lurking. It's like if I saw Dr. Whitney in the hall, I was trying. Because I was humiliated. And so I did this for like a year. <laughs> I'm like, what
1: is my problem? <laughs>
0: I thought, I, Norma's never really gotten this. So I sat her down one day and I said, would you be willing to let me really talk to you about what the Dr. Whitney thing meant? And I told her, I said, I was so, um, I tried to do something for you. And it was very exposing. And you exposed me. And it made me feel stupid. In front of somebody who I want to respect me. And we talked back and forth and Norma got it. She said, I I, I didn't try it on like you're saying you did that for me, and I made you look like a stalker husband. And that's not who you want to be. You want to be cool John Cox, the doctor who works with Dr. Whitney? And I'm like, yes. And I felt that wing melt away. I felt it melt away. Talk to Dr. Whitney this week. We got to be heard. Now, that's simple. That's great. But why might that be hard for Norman to do? Why might we not rush to that? I'll tell you about me. The reason I hate hearing somebody like that, or the reason I hate seeing how I've hurt somebody, is that it feels almost like I'm walking right to the edge of agreeing that I'm the bad guy and you're the good guy. And something in me so resists that. And Norma might feel like if she gets it, if she owns it, it's like saying, you're right, John. I am so sorry. You were a victim of my horrible scheme to humiliate me. You know? (laughs) And that would feel awful, and nobody's going to do that. And one of the reasons we never resolve hurt is because it feels like if I really hear you and acknowledge it, it's almost like I'm saying, you're right, I'm wrong, I'm the bad guy, all right, close in prayer. And nobody's going to do that. And partly that's because we don't want to be the bad guy, but partly because that's not the whole truth. We haven't heard the whole truth here. We've just heard my part. Norma hasn't gotten heard. And that's going to make her want to defend and push back, and we're going to be back to who's the bad guy hot potato again, and we'll never resolve this. So, we've got to hear her too. What most fights are is a tug of war to see who's going to get heard. Replay your fight. That's not what I'm saying. Yes, it is. You told me that yesterday. That is not what I said. Oh my gosh, you always make these generalizations. You hear us? That's not what I said. That's not what I meant. You didn't say I did. I'm trying to get you to get it. And you'll fight for the rest of your life to you try to fight to see who's going to get the floor and be gotten. Okay? So, in order to overcome that problem, we're going to have to use a very sophisticated psychological. Technique. I want you to take turns, right? In other words, once Norman's heard me about Dr. Whitney, she gets a turn. When we have fights, we'll slow down, go bird's eye, back up, and I'll go, okay, I got heard first last time. You get to go first this time. What do you need here? What's going on here? I'll just listen and keep my mouth shut. Because you know what? I know I'll get a turn. You'll get a turn, but not now, right? And I get to say, okay, thank you for hearing me about Dr. Whitney. Is there anything you need about this? And she's going to go, well, as a matter of fact, there is. I kind of feel like you made this giant deal out of this and have hammered me for it. To be honest with you, John, I feel like you wanted Dr. Whitney to admire you and think you're super cool. And what I did made you look just like an average guy who did something for his wife. And that, like, made you feel shame and stupid, and you took that out on me. I went, you're right. Part of this was my narcissism. Part of this was I wanted her to think I was the bomb. And being just a husband who sneaks out of the car for his wife felt foolish. And I didn't want to look foolish. I wanted to be a badass. And that took it away from me. And I said, you're right. And even if she wasn't right, I would need to hear her because otherwise she's not going to get hurt. Okay? But she had a point. I put a lot of my, like, I want her to think I'm amazing into this situation. And that's screwed up, man. My wife called me out on it. Good catch. All right? In other words, she got hurt, too. Thank you, John. This wasn't just me being stupid. It's that you put a lot of weight on this. You didn't need to do that. All right? Hearing heals hurt. Three H's. I like that better than I'm Sorry. I'm sorry is, I don't know, like kissing your sister. I want you to go, I get it. I really hurt you. I see what I did. That must have felt so-and-so. That really touches my heart, okay? All right, we've done our timeout, bird's eye, addressing hurt. We're almost done. Final step. Now we got to solve the problem. Remember we said every fight is hopeless because it's a win-lose? Little buckaroos and buckarettes. No fight's ever going to get better until we find a win-win. All right? You can't bully your way. You can't nag your way. You can't play the submission card. You know the one that says, Tacos to the Husband? You both have to matter in the solution. all right. Another thing we could call this is matter-matter. That's mutuality, not winning. Okay. And what that means is that what your spouse wants in the conflict, or the point they're making in the conflict, has to matter in the solution, even if you hate it. all right. But the day you said, I do, you agreed that your opinion would not be the only thing that is weighed into the choices y'all make. Good news is though your spouse said the same thing. All right? Our our family used to have a an annual fight. Uh, I don't know if y'all do this. Uh, South we do this. We um, we did send Christmas card pictures of the kids. Y'all do that? Okay. Three girls do the math. Three girls Christmas card pictures. It was a it was a you know disaster every year. And one year you know when they were like teens and preteens. It was especially bad. We'd have you know. Usual, you know, six, seven hundred pictures, and they would go through them, and you know, which one are they going to pick to be the Christmas card picture? And this year, nobody could find one. You know, any any two would agree on one, but one of the girls was like, "No, my like, hair is goofy," you know, so we couldn't use that one because her is good, right? So one year they absolutely could not reach a, a, a solution, and we finally said, "Look, you guys got to pick one. If you don't, we're going to pick." you know, fake worse than death. So they picked one, and the only thing that can be said about this picture is that they all were okay with it. It was a terrible picture,
1: but they all were okay with
0: it. Now, Callie, who was 17 then, she's the one who's a therapist now. She said, oh, I get it. Compromises where everybody is equally unhappy. (laughs) She said, if I got my pick, at least somebody in the house would be happier. Right now, nobody's happy. So, if you're fussing and fighting. That is your goal in your marriage. For both of you to be mutually unhappy. My clients love it. It's like, thanks, Doc. Now we're both unhappy. But technically, literally, win-win is not a solution. It is a commitment. Win-win is an attitude. Win-win is a covenant. Win-win is a lifestyle. What win win means is, I don't know how to solve this problem right now, we'll have to figure it out, but what it means is you can trust me and I can trust you that I do not need to fight you in order for me to matter. Win win is a covenant like the Marines, like nobody's going to be left behind. See, one of the reasons that we fight is that we're scared. I'm scared that if I don't fight you and control you and stand up to you and push back on you that you're going to take what you want and leave me out in the cold and under the bus I go and you're not going to care. So I'm going to try to control you before you can control me because I don't trust you. So a huge piece that I invite couples to to take is to covenant with one another. I am committed to working with you so that you don't get left out in the cold. We will fight together to both matter. All right, That covenant is vital. And I'm am amazed at the things that people can come up with when they're trying to problem solve and not fight. Couples come up with the best ideas. Win-win means if you want Chinese food and I want Mexican. When Liz says I'm going to get Mexican tough on you or you get Chinese tough on me. Win-win says we're going to get Mexican and get Chinese takeout on the way home. Or we're going to go to Chili's and get a southwestern egg roll. We're gonna do something. <laughs> going to be good nice,
1: right?
0: I saw a couple while back, and he had a pretty good job, but wanted to quit it and go to med school. She had a pretty good job, wanted to quit it and have babies. So, what do his med school dreams mean to her babies? What do her baby dreams mean to his med school? Okay, they knew it. They were set up. Win lose. Who's gonna get the life they want? And they were scared and they were fighting and they were at each other's throats and they were both afraid, all right? <clears throat> we really talked about how much they felt like this was a win-lose and how little they trusted the other person to not just go, okay, go off to med school, check you later. And they were really afraid of that. Once we addressed that some and talked about to what degree they were willing to care for each other and include one another and compromise for one another, they started getting really creative It was cool. He started thinking, you know, I'm half me wants just to do nurse practice school. I don't know if I want to do the whole med school 11 years of my life thing anyway. Okay, that's an idea. She had some family investments they played around with so they could have a little money and she could still quit and have babies and maybe just work a little bit. They just started getting creative. How can we both take care of each other? I'm amazed at how creative people get once they stop fighting. All right? So you think I'm too hard on the kids? I think you're too soft. Let's read a book. Talk to a counselor. We both got to get uncomfortable here. You think I'm too, we're too frugal? I want to spend more money. We both need to get uncomfortable. You want? I want to talk tonight about our problem. You're tired. and want to go to sleep. Okay. Well, then we'll wait till tomorrow. But if you agree to bring it up, all right? You want to remodel? I don't think we have the money for it. What do we do? Well, I don't know. How about just the kitchen? How about just a new Viking range? And we'll do the rest of the kitchen later after we find out about your bonus. But do you hear the attitude? It's people who are humble and are willing to work together. And I find that once couples do that, it changes the dynamic, okay? So it's finding the win-win hard. Yeah, you got to work. But at least now what you're doing is solving a problem. And that's what marriage is. is two people solving problems, not fighting. Right? Alright, so I want you to write these down. When I was doing therapy, and Norman and I were doing some therapy ourselves, I had rules I learned about fighting and conflict written down on a piece of paper. I put it in the bookshelf of our bedroom, and once things got heated, I would go get it out and read it, because caveman is not thinking I need to remember this. Don't trust your mirror. Right? And in regard to all this, you might need your body of Christ people to help you have better insight. Let's do questions now, and we can do questions. We stop at noon. We've got 45 minutes for questions, and you're my first one.
2: People are hooked from family things, long tapes, parents have died. They may have... Say it in the microphone.
1: Oh,
2: hello. Oh, people are hooked. Maybe it's a parent tape, something parents did to them. They put so long, they may not have even forgot. It's buried. But the real foot is there. How do they even identify the hook themselves to solve
0: it? All right. Good question. How hurt can be so long standing, or in such a legacy or almost a pre-verbal, non-verbalized place? Something is getting triggered I don't know what it is.
3: I'm in this question. <laughs> Pardon me? I'm interested in your answer. I'm in this question.
0: You got it. All right. Um. I lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. Um, The the long-standing hurt. A long-standing hurt. Um, Can I ask you some questions? Sure. Um, What sort of fruit do you see that hurt producing? Does it make you get loud and mean? Does it make you get scared and withdrawn? Does it make you... um,
2: She's got a real coin thing that bothers me, and she's never addressed it. And I've asked her, what's the real problem? And she doesn't know how to respond. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay. Um... So ask me Just, <laughs> Do you want to talk about what that thing is?
3: I don't know what
0: he's talking about It's something that's bothering him and you don't even know what it is I'm glad I asked I'm so glad, I'm here. I'm so glad you're here too um, th- I'll let that be something y'all talk about later But let me throw out some ideas and some principles about it, and y'all can try to apply them. Um, If your spouse is consistently, chronically doing something, and they keep doing it, and and you want them to stop, and they won't stop it, first question, remember, is are they repentant or unrepentant? Alright? If they're repentant, and they're going, yeah, it's driving me crazy, I want to stop this, I don't know what's hooking me, then you're on the same team, and you can do some good work. Here's a principle for that. With any out-of-control behavior, Any habitual thing I keep doing that I can't stop, it's only going to get better if it gets two things. Secret of the universe. You've got to develop some understanding of what it is that's triggering (laughs) it. And maybe you don't know that yet, but that's only one of the two, so you're okay. In other words, let's say I'm a shopaholic, um, and I keep shopping on Amazon Prime, clicking that button. Um, It would be good to have some idea, like, what is the emptiness I'm trying to fill with Amazon Prime, Okay. And some nurture and some understanding of the issue or the hurt. That's somewhat of the issue. But, if that's all you do, what you'll end up with is a very nurtured, loved, and understood shopaholic. The second piece that's got to happen with any out-of-control behavior is no out-of-control behavior ever gets better unless you experience literal, experiential consequences for it. Okay? In other words, the part of us that's acting out I'm a, I'm a rageful, explosive person. Um, I'm overeating. I'm being a shopaholic. I am um, um, reactive and unkind to the kids. I'm chronically forgetful. Pick an out-of-control behavior. Great. Understand the inner world of it, but it's never going to get better unless it overtly costs you something in reality. And the reason that is is because the part of us that is out of control is that six-year-old. And unless something literal happens to him, if you tell an alcoholic, stop drinking, just think of the way it hurts your family, that's like telling a five year old, go do your homework because just think of all the people you'll help one day as a neurosurgeon. They're like, what? Okay? You need to take their Xbox away. Okay? So if somebody has an area in their life, they're like, I keep doing X, Y, Z, and you want me to stop and I don't know why I keep doing it, one step is let's start asking, other eyes, other people, safe people, body of Christ, talk with me. Let's figure out what I'm eating here emotionally. But you're just whistling Dixie if you only do that. You have to have an actual literal consequence. I talked about this once somewhere and they said, uh, somebody raised hand and said, I don't understand what you mean by a liberal consequence. <laughs> well, I don't know what liberal consequences are either. What do liberals do? You know, um, Literal consequence. Um Norman, and I went through a phase in 2015. I found the note in my phone yesterday for some reason. Um, I would, we would have a little tiff, and I have a man cave upstairs since the girls left, and it's kind of fun. I'll go watch a movie or something. And, um, I'd go watch a movie in a man cave. I'd come back down at 1030, and she'd be all ready for bed, you know, sort of a, reading a book or something like that. And, and I'd still have the tiff in my mind. And I'd come down, and I'd be going like, and another thing. And she's just like, whoa. You know? <laughs> And so she, next day, she's like, that felt terrible. I'm like, I know, that was crazy. What was I doing? <laughs> well, about two weeks later, I did it again. Another day. And she said, you did it again? I'm like, I know, what's going wrong with me? But I know this principle. And I said, A, I'm going to talk to my body of Christ people and find out what is the deal pushing my buttons. B, next time I do that to you, I lose the man cave for a week. I'm downstairs watching Gray's Anatomy and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Fate <laughs> worse than death. <laughs> <clears throat> so two weeks later, I did it again, and she looks at me and goes, "Man cake. and I lost man for a week. And that was tw- that was 2015. Haven't done it since.
1: <laughs> now, what does a
0: woman say about that? A woman says. So, you'd be nice to your wife for the man cave, but not just because you love her. And my answer is, yes. <laughs> because the part of me we're dealing with is not adult me who's loving and wise. It's little kid me who's like, man cave, man gay, Okay? <laughs> and you have to train that part of you. So, if you're dealing with a situation in which a repentant person says, yeah, please, um, I want to help stop this. There needs to be some understanding from someone besides you, some one of our Body of Christ people, and there needs to be a literal consequence for that, or else we don't learn. Now, it also works backwards. To the degree that I have literal consequences, it will push me to have more emotional awareness of what's going on. If I can't act out on my issue, I will feel it more emotionally, and I won't have better insight about it. Now, let's flip it over. What if this person unrepentant? If you're dealing with an unrepentant person... And you say you keep doing this, you keep doing this, and they go, fine, tough, sorry, I don't care. Then it's incumbent upon you to figure out how to protect yourself from it. In other words, um, I have a client whose uh, husband is a is rageful, rageful, loves to like, get her in the car where she can't escape. And will just go off on her. And so she's like, well, what do you do then? Can't jump out of the car? And I said, get creative. Let's figure this out. Like, what can you do to set limits on him doing that? You can't make him stop. So what she did was, she called one of his friends and made a deal with his friend. And the deal is this. When he goes off on her in the car, she pushes speed dial and holds the phone up. Worst case scenario, he gets a really juicy voicemail. She said, you can yell at me all you want. Your friends and I will hold you accountable. I got another guy now who is also rageful. Sorry I'm picking rageful here. Uh, We could pick pornography, whatever. Um, This guy loves his car and uh, rages at the kids. And he is repentant, actually. Uh, And he has lost his car for a week. He has to drive this beater car that's in the backyard. Uh, He's now lost it for a month. Next strike, he sells it. Ooh. (laughs) Anyway. Anyway so limit setting on an out of control person somebody asked me a good question that's related to this on the um, the google voice how do you set boundaries on a spouse who blames problems on me love this question they basically say that I'm the reason our marriage is unhappy that I nag or I'm critical or I'm controlling or whatever in other words how do you respond to a spouse's orientation basically is, we have problems because of you. Interesting, huh? Now, apparently that person's not repentant. They're not going, wow, we're both bringing something to the table here, aren't we? So, this is a question essentially about a bully-victim orientation. In other words, I'm dealing with a spouse who wants to pick on me. Now, we could ask the same question and say, what do you do with a spouse who says, I'm a terrible cook, or I never make good meals, or I don't keep the house clean enough. In other words, the dynamic here is (coughs) an underpin critical spouse to the more oppressed spouse. So the question is, for the oppressed spouse, what's the most powerful intervention back to them, right? And if you are the oppressed spouse, thank you for asking this question, what do I need to do? That's the right question, not why are they such jerks, but why don't I know better how to deal with a difficult person? I recommend you set some limits on how you interact with them. So they come to you and they say... Well, you're the problem, and I'm so tired of you doing this, and so tired of you doing that. I want to say to them this. Tell you what. Well, let me ask you a question. Is what you're saying that you want us to have a relationship in which when one of us needs something, the other one is open to that? I'm assuming you want me to be open to you, and what you're saying is your problem. Is that the kind of relationship you want to have? In which we both look honestly at the ways in which we're contributing to our problems? If so, great. Speak on. And then it'll be my turn. And are you open to hearing the ways in which you contribute? They'll probably like roll their eyes or call you names or something. At that point you go, sorry. Then I'm not willing to listen to you talk to me about the ways in which I am at fault. You can just be unhappy. As long as you want. And any time you're ready for us to both work, I'll be willing to. But as long as you want to sit in the seat of Moses and be the good one, <coughs> you don't have me. Now, you can stop there. Or You can wait. Because most perpetrating jerky spouses will want something from you later on. They will swing back around and say, oh, I've got a work party this weekend. Just to let you know, it's at the boss's house. And I'm going to go, I'm a little confused. I've asked you very, very, very sincerely and deeply to stop living in that critical, hurtful position with me. And you seem very committed to keep doing it. And now you're asking me to do something for you. I would love to. Can you explain to me why you think I might want to? Because I would love to have the kind of relationship in which we both care for each other, but that doesn't seem to be the kind of relationship you want. So you answer that question for me, and I will answer the question for you whether I'm going to go to the party or not. These are Jedi mind tricks with a jerk. this is the way I want you living if you have a a controlling perp in your life and that is a godly thing to do to them people go oh well that feels punitive or retaliatory like you know you're punishing them like they're unkind to you so you're not going to go to the party with them that seems petty and I'm like well not actually in fact going to the party with them after they've treated you like that is actually lying to them It's distorting reality to them Think about it like this. If you go to a shoe store and walk in and they go, we don't sell shoes to stupid looking people like you who wear shoes like that," Are you going to buy shoes from them? In reality, you probably won't, right? And why? Is that because you're being manipulative or you're trying to be petty or teach them a lesson? No, in reality, if you're a jerk, people leave your store. But what I see over and over again is victimized spouses who get treated like garbage and then feel like they still need to take the high road and be the good person. That's not reality. Notice I didn't say, oh, want something for me now, huh, mister? No, I'm not going. I said, no, I would love to go to the party with you. Reality dictates that I not, though, because I'm confused. Which kind of relationship do you want? It's loving Christ-like power to me. So... A lot of thoughts about dealing with a behavior you want to stop. Another question. Yes,
3: ma'am. When you were talking about providing intimacy, a lot of the examples you were giving for sharing feelings seemed to someone who might feel like uh, they're comfortable with feelings pretty value neutral, like, oh, I'm sad about something you said or you hurt me. Um, But to what extent the sharing like feelings and thoughts and impulses that we have that we recognize as explicitly sinful figure into finding intimacy.
0: Oh, that's cool. Did y'all hear it? No. Uh, sharing, sharing feelings <laughs> that are. Would you like to do the beginning? me too. I don't <clears throat> All right, I'll, uh, sharing feelings that are um, somewhat benign. I'm happy, sad, angry, glad. Um, Where does the role of sharing feelings that are explicitly sinful? Like, I am feeling a lot of hate for you right now. Um, What do I do with wrong feelings? Um, You know, I think that truth is most often best serving as the handmaiden to love. In other words, my first thought would be what would be most loving. And um, if this is about my spouse... And I have explicitly uh, destructive or hurtful feelings. You know, I'm really attracted to my secretary. Um, I think probably I need to do a little body of Christ work and let that get kind of more grounded, a little more digested and metabolized, and then try to decide whether to bring it to my spouse. Feelings are not a good source of information about reality, but they're a great source of information about me And if I'm hating my spouse or I'm attracted to the secretary or whatever, the primary value of that right now is information. Wow, interesting. What is going on with me? And it doesn't feel appropriate. It feels off. I'm going to bring that in my body of Christ people and go, guys what is the deal? I look at my wife and I'm going to ring her neck. What is my problem? Okay? And I want them to help me to metabolize that and digest it. Then if I ever do bring it to my spouse, I can already have some traction and I'm going to say, I got. I want to just be honest with you and let you know where I've been. This is not for you to take on. I'm taking this on. I have lived in a place where I've felt a lot of anger at you lately and I've figured out what it is. And I want you to know that I've been working on it. But then you're bringing it in a sharing way. You're not bringing it in a way that puts any burden on them or takes anything from them. Does that get around to your question? Okay. Let's make sure to use the microphone so everyone can hear. Sure. By the way, uh, Sunday school tomorrow, um, those of you, if we don't get to questions, Sunday school tomorrow is going to be stump the Chomp. All right. <laughs> Basically you can ask parenting questions or questions about anxiety or marriage or we'll just talk about any any topic then just in case we don't get them all today. Yes. So last night you mentioned you might want to have a little uh, mini clinic on grief. Okay. Yeah. Yep. you mentioned uh, two contexts in which um, knowing how to grieve appropriately would be helpful. Yeah. One was uh, <laughs> <laughs> when I said if you are uh, you can let pleasant emotions the like, sadness yeah. and so that that can be healthy and if you, you don't know how to agree appropriately uh, you also use the analogy of the circuit breaker to describe those depression. new depression right? yeah well yeah i've We're um, right. talking about it in the context of depression but i've always described myself that way just with some trauma from earlier you know earlier experiences when i was young um it makes it easy to kind of disassociate you know yes, and not good. not really experience the hard things and I. No. I've the fact that that has uh, impeded the ability to experience positive emotions. Yeah. So, softball question, let's, let's have the grief mini-plank. Say that again? You said we have a, a grief, grief mini-plank? Yes. Let's have it. Let's have it. Let's have it. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you want me to begin with the issue of what do we do with an intro we haven't known how to metabolize? Yeah. Like, um, Healthy people have a circuit breaker. People who have no circuit breaker at all end up in the hospital somewhere. And God gave us defenses that keep our pain at bay. Um, yet sometimes that disconnection can create symptoms. The depression's one of them. Um, but pick a card, any card. Um... So we, we end up with this dilemma of I have a history in which there's pain, and I don't think that individual events particularly are what caused my injuries. Um, an event that I remember is usually indicative of a more lifestyle that helped form my character. The character issues we talked about up here are things you learn gradually in and out in the day to day of a lifestyle in your family. Uh, one particular event's not necessarily going to create or destroy a character ability, um, but it is indicative of a way of life that does create that character ability or that injury. So, here I am and I have an injury. I can't really walk into it fully emotionally uh, because it hurts too much. Um, so what we do in therapy is this nice little dance. The only way I'm ever going to be able to walk into sorrow or pain or hurt or trauma is if I have someone with me. And if I have someone with me and they really are connected to me, what happens is here's this bucket of trauma. Well, let me frame it like this. I often tell people that, that um, pain and trauma, is, it, it creates a dilemma for us. It's like I'm standing at this dam and I'm holding up the gigantic dam full of the weight of water of all of this pain and my options feel like either I stand there forever and hold it up or I blow up the dam and get washed away by it, which are not good options. Well what a therapy situation does in a sense is sort of tap one of those beer taps into the into the to the dam and every week you and I open it a little bit and drink one cup of the water. A little bit together, and what happens is over time I can drink more and more of the water, and the water level gets down. What happens is once you're connected, you can start to touch the emotion, and you'll touch you know, you know, one percent of it. And what happens when we do that in the context of the relationship is you will be sad and you will mourn, you will have a safety here, right now, and a detachment from that little kid you, but you can look at him and you'll start to feel sad for. I had an interaction with my dad this week that so triggered up, so many of my own injuries there, and I just sat for a while and felt deeply sad about what it was like to be me then with him. That sadness is this mourning. It's, it's, uh, it's best done with someone else. Sad, grief alone is almost an oxymoron. There's something about feeling sorrow with someone else. There's a reason why our tear ducts are in our eyes. If I see someone else and they're with me, there's something in me that can start to open up that attachment a little bit. And if we do it a little bit at a time, it's kind of like lifting weights. At first, I can only lift a little weight, but then I'm getting stronger. And soon I'm stronger and can lift more weight, and now I'm either stronger. And so we walk through this process where we open and look at the injury and have some objectivity about it, but within the cushion of a safe relationship. Now, what happens then, and getting to your grief question is, grief is a hard thing, sadness, grief. We usually associate it just with death, but it's with any kind of loss. It's the sorrow and the giving up. It's the acknowledgement of something painful, where I look at it and I see I can't change it, and it's really there, but I have these good things to hold on to. John is with me. We're walking through this. I know I'm loved, and I can look at that, injury now and go, oh my gosh, that was I can't believe I had to go through that. Oh my gosh. And you have this perspective that lets you feel sorrow. That sadness with another person is incredibly healing in itself. I'm not sure exactly how it works. It's kind of magical. Somehow God made it, like I told you about my brother, where the things that feel devastating start to soften. Um, sadness is the best example I know of giving up what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. I can't go back and change that. But as I look at it and grieve it, it's like I start to feel the groundedness and the good news that my story didn't end there. That I moved on and I'm having better answers now. My life feels old now and I have people with me now. And there's something about that that lets me look back and feel deep sadness about that. And that sadness in itself is like, well, here's one of the things sadness for ourselves does. Think about there's a difference between feeling sorry for yourself and feeling sadness for yourself. Okay? I mean, feeling sorry for yourself is a misnomer. You know? Uh, and it's legit. People like say, quit feeling sorry for yourself. And that's legit because feeling sorry for yourself is like Eeyore. You know, like, it's my birthday, happiest day of the year. Don't worry about me. Right? Now, Eeyore is not sad. Eeyore is being passively aggressively angry actually in that example he's saying in essence piglet i hate you you know this is my birthday and you forgot it and i want you to feel bad about it and that's where feeling sorry for yourself has gotten a bad name feeling sorrow for yourself is giving to yourself what you give to a friend when you sit down with them and you put your arm around them and go i cannot believe what you guys have been through oh my gosh And the ability to sort of look at our own hearts and our own losses and go, oh my gosh, that is heartbreaking to me as I look at what I had to go through. That's this deeply compassionate, loving thing. That's the only way I've been able to figure out how sadness works. It is a baptism of love on your own injuries. It is a, you know, when the Bible says, woe is me, it is this thing that says, I am in a place of woe. I self-reflect and see that sorrow. Something about that is incredibly healing and incredibly life-giving. If we don't go to sadness, we will either live having to disconnect or we'll live with some sort of a symptom. We'll live trying to avoid it in some way. We will live our life doing everything we can to never go there, which means I will walk everywhere else but there, and that's usually going to have effects. So the, the good news, the power of sadness is it lets us actually, with someone else's help, gradually move in the place where we don't have to live, not live. And the power it has to heal us is pretty remarkable once we go there. But go there with somebody. You need somebody close. Whoa. I was in a Sunday school class once and we sang a hymn at the end of the class. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And there was a storm outside and as we said, the things of earth will grow strangely dim. The lights are out. <laughs> oh, that's spooky, man. <laughs> Another question? Yes, ma'am? Either, either, ma'am? Um, How do you recover from being open in a place that's supposed to be safe and wasn't? Can I ask you a couple questions? Sure. If this place is safe. Um, Are you talking almost like a PTSD thing? Like, um, wow, I got really humiliated or betrayed, and it's really hard for me to now trust that you won't do the same thing? Is that what you're talking about? How do I learn to trust the body of Christ? Yes. there in
1: the
0: Yes. So it, do you experience that as something that controls you? You are now don't feel free and safe to be open anymore? Or are you saying it's a problem you don't know how to overcome within the community body? Are we dealing with your own? It's more like your own injury. Yes. Okay. So, um... <coughs> Let's not do this, but I would tell you what I would want to do. Um, I would want you to talk to me about what that injury meant to you. What did it feel like? Did it make you feel humiliated? Did it make you feel ashamed? Did it make you feel betrayed? Did it make you feel exposed? There's a sense in which other people's injury to me is um, going to have effect. But there's also a sense in which I want to really, as the injured party, I want to have a very clear understanding of what that effect is. In other words, I don't want to give my vulnerability, my soul, my definition to these other people that they get to decide, um, that they get to take that from me. Okay? And I want to say, okay, they took the precious things in my heart and sort of spat on them. Like, I'm not going to let that be the end of the story. I know who I am, and I know who loves me, and I know where I'm loved, and they don't get to take that. That injured me, but it's not going to destroy me, and it's not going to take me. In other words, I want to take that injury from them. And I want to do that by understanding what the injury is, what they took, what it meant. So your stewardship of that injury is kind of a really important step. Now, it's going to also affect your choices in the future regarding people. Have you been able to find other people who you felt like were safe? Yeah, okay, right. Our culture really is um, very dysfunctional in regard to safety. And this whole notion of us becoming a body of Christ who are safe, we got a lot of learning to do. Remember I told you last night, it's going to take a generation. Like, we're just starting it out. And it's hard to find with very vulnerable pieces of our hearts. It's hard to find lay people who are really safe about that. Hmm. Uh, that makes my heart kind of ugh. Hearing you talk about that. Is there anything else I can give you there? I don't feel like I'm giving you very much. I don't know. I just I want to be able to be
3: open and be involved and
0: the Christ the way I know I should. It's just very difficult. The way you should or the way you want? how do you feel about the process of um, what does it look like to form new relationships Mm -hmm. one of the ways I think about it is I, I think very consciously about um, looking for those people. And it's like you talk to somebody at a party who goes to your church and you go, they go, How are you? And I'm like, Oh all right normally I had to fight on the way to work. I mean the way to party. And if he goes, Well, um, I hope you repair that because you know marriage should reflect the the relationship Christ has with the church, I'm gonna be like, yeah, how do you But if he says, dude, tell me about it, and you got to ride home with her, man, you know, I'm gonna be like, cool. Lunch or and I'm gonna start, you know, don't cast your pearls before swine. You need good swine testers. Um, so <laughs> I'm gonna ask that guy lunch, and, and I'm gonna be feeling him out. How much does this guy get, and how safe is he? And I might try and do something else a little bit more. And you can kind of get a vibe for how far somebody can go and I might stop there. Now with another friend, they might be able to go a lot further. And with another friend, they're not going to be able to go far at all, but they always have good sense. And I think the body of Christ in in regard to adult relationships, at least right now in our culture, is sort of like restaurants. You can get good Mediterranean here, you can get good home cooking there. And I have different relationships where I this (coughs) person personally go to the core of my soul. They're not that good at, like, good advice, but they love my heart. And this person's going to tell me the truth. They're going to stab me in the front. They're going to, whatever it means, whatever it takes. And I'm always kind of looking and measuring and guarding these people. Where is it safe? Where do I go? And, it, and I think as a result of your experience, playing around with what it looks like to, I call these people seashells, because that's how you find them. It's kind of like you stumble across a seashell and go at the beach and go, wow, that's a pretty one. Um, and sometimes, you know, it's got something living in it, you know, people are like that. So I want you to do
1: that.
0: And, and, um, be thinking as a steward and a, a master of these choices, of learning and evaluating and selecting and choosing and testing and trying. And let that be an active initiatory part of your life now. That gets you out of that position of one down, like what might they do to me, how can I trust them? That's a position I want to help you get out of. I want you more in a sort of a positive, proactive, aggressor position of I'm now gonna be the selector and look for these people. if they don't measure up, they don't get anything. Alright? And so that gets you out of that vulnerability, I think, a little bit. It is a difficult sort. I had
3: a question. Okay. taking the time out Um, and I've also heard it said by preachers that what you say in an argument or a fight is what you most mean to say that that is like the bible verse out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks and so do you want to
1: say those things
3: do you say those things to yourself and then go check your heart before you say them out loud (coughs)
0: Well, A, I disagree with the preacher. Um, the Bible presupposes that adults are eating it. The Bible rarely talks as if it's talking to somebody who is um, characterologically impaired. It often speaks to people as if they're whole. okay, And sinful and can make choices. But the Bible doesn't say a lot about having a characterological inability to do something. Uh, and and I'm not sure exactly why that is but what we're talking about here is literal little kid undeveloped parts of us and those parts need to be treated like a child they need to be contained and they need to be understood and loved, they also shouldn't be let shouldn't let them drop and I think when I am most triggered what you'll get is my most regressed primitive wicked self and that part is not my truest heart Certainly not my Roman seven experience of my heart, um, and so I think both my wife and others need to be protected from that. But I think it's a poor judge of who I really am. It's a judge of my immaturity and of my sinfulness, and I think we need to set limits on that and push that part to grow. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Let's talk about that sometime. Like, what's the Bible's role with developmental issues? Great. Question. I don't
2: know what who that preacher was. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, it like, may
2: have been me i don't know
0: you said the sermon this summer um the P, like the pga manual doesn't have to say um wait what does he said? It's written to humans yeah the pga manual presupposes you're a human all right and i think the bible in a lot of ways presupposes you're functioning more or less at an adult level what I see a lot of our problems coming from because of our screwed up culture is a lot of us are functioning in a child level and when you grow up, emotionally I see people making a lot more sanctified choices, but that's a mystery to me, I want to figure that out Dr. Cox, we're going to have uh, one more question because we're right up against time and if you guys want to have more Q&A time, you're welcome to come to Trinity tomorrow at 9am, but we want to be respectful of your time, Dr. Cox Right, but we have till noon, right? That. Well, after each question, you can been talking a bit. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so given space. my current rate of answering, I have. Excuse <laughs>
1: <think. laughs> me, space. Other one, quick.
3: So, my question is: uh, in a small group, particularly a new small group, how do you help foster an environment of um, safety?
0: Good, yeah, in a small group. Um, small group that does growth, a growth group, needs to have a strong leader. Needs to have somebody who is in command of this group. They can't be just a bunch of guys, gals. Somebody has to say, I mean, I'll am be the leader, right? Now, y'all need to have a, a, a DTR, need to have a conversation. What do y'all want to do? Do you, you want to share our hearts? Um, everybody good on that? Let's be sure, because if you're not, we need to decide what we going to do. Um, they will split up. Some will do the thing. Some will do some, some used to Bible study. Whatever. There needs to be a very overt decision. There needs to be ground rules. There needs to be. We're not going to advise each other. Um, you, you say anything that happens in this group to anybody, you are out. Audio's muchacho. Um, maybe one time you get to come back in the group. We're going to talk about why you did it, what that meant, what was going on. Yeah. But strike two, you certainly are gone. Uh, I want to be violent about that. Um, anyway, some ground rules about that sort of thing, and the group. Then I think oftentimes, um, as a new group, it's fun for your first structure and study to be some something like uh, Cloud Townsend's House Small Groups Work." their book, work through the book and read the book together and do chapter one next week and say, alright good, this is what they said, what does that mean to y'all? And now you start getting serious and you start going, I'm kind of open, I'm also a little scared like I want to be as open as they're talking about but I don't know, I mean how do y'all feel and everybody else goes, yeah I'm kind of scared too and now you're having this kind of cool group experience already, right? So anyway, it kind of begins like that I'm realizing that I have a lot of questions on here that I haven't looked at. Let me just look through and see what they are. What do you do when your spouse cannot admit when they have made a mistake or will not own up to wrongdoings in the relationship? Um, In other words, again, an unrepentant issue. Um, I am not willing to own my own badness. Well, you can't make them do that, but you can certainly let that affect the relationship. In other words, I want to say... um, Number one, I think it's pretty obvious that both of us contribute to the problems that we have in our relationship. Let me give you the benefit of the doubt. Is there any way I could deal with you differently that would make you feel safer being able to admit some role you've had? Is there anything that you need in order to be a fellow repentant person like me? And if they still thumb their nose at you, I'm going to go, So you're going to remain in a position in which you are just the good one and I'm the bad one. I'm going to have a little bit of trouble being real close to you if that's where you are. That really makes me pull my heart away from you. In other words, the first consequence of that is if you pull your heart away from me in self-righteousness, I don't really want to be that close to you. And if they say, well, okay, well, that's cool. Well, um, you want to watch a movie or something tonight? I'd go, I'll give anything to you. I'm still not sure what to do with the fact that you stand in such a self-righteous position with me. I can't own the way in which you hurt me. I don't, I don't think I really am in a place to watch a movie with you right now. But I love you, and I'd love to get to that place. In other words, I want you to start living congruently with their disconnection in a very loving way, not a punitive way, but like the shoe store. I just want you to live there. Um, with <coughs> an openness that says, the moment you are willing to share responsibility with me, let's, let's talk to somebody. In other words, I want you to... You can't push them, but you can say there are costs to you living with that level of disconnect with me. That's you being in a power power position with them. What's the best way to deal with overbearing in-laws? That's a good one. Um, My question would be... How does your spouse feel about it? In other words, the in-laws are theirs. Do they mind them being overbearing? Most situations like this that I run into, this spouse has always felt controlled by the family mom has always been the one who ran everything, and she still runs everything, and that, that that spouse has no category of what it would mean to stand up to that mom. I mean, his dad can't stand up to that mom. It's like I told one guy about their marriage. I said, unless you stand up to your wife, your daughter's going to continue destroying herself. And he said, that wouldn't be a divorce. That would be a funeral. Some people feel like they can never approach their family and that would be an interesting problem to talk with your spouse about that's step one i would try is i want you and your spouse on the same team because the vibe of the question and what i hear lots of times from people is more of a oh my gosh your mom is so so-and-so why can't you stop her from doing so-and-so and it becomes a win-lose it becomes a power struggle i want you to stand up to your family and he's like, well, you don't understand. You just can't. That's just the way she is. And you get in this adversarial position. One of the things I like to invite spouses to do at that point, step one, admittedly there might need to be more, is to say, okay, your family is a problem. I don't know how to deal with it, and you don't either. How can we put our heads together and work together on this? Because I know you don't like your mom doing that, acting that way. Are we willing to talk to somebody? Let's work together on this. Step one is to kind of get out of the adversarial position of you going, why can't you stop your family from being so and so? I would have to know some more details to unpack that one more, but that's a starting place. Let's do one more question from the field and then we'll stop. Those of you who texted me questions, I apologize for not being able to get to all of them. I'll try to get to some tomorrow. Any more questions from the field? Yes,
3: ma'am. I don't know. So basically, as you're talking about that square early on, and you've got self, and then you've got child self. Are you um, ready No. Um, it's kind of a multi-part question. Of, so you've got this child part. As you're exploring that, how, how much do you suggest, or do you think that there are multiple child parts to address and to get to know? And then at what point, though, does this self-awareness of the inner workings lead to more self-focus, that becomes unhelpful. Does that make sense? So it's kind of multifaceted. Mm-hmm. Just basically, how do you handle that and suggest other people like to approach growing in self-awareness Can and actually see? getting to know and label that they're conflicting parts of children that follow mm-hmm.
0: each other? Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. So First, give me an example of what too much self-focus looks like.
3: I think that's more my question is 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 there a point of too much self-focus where you're becoming so self-aware that all you're thinking about are these different parts of you that you're trying to get to know and maybe that answers the question. Well actually I I think
0: that healthy self-awareness usually breeds less self-awareness in other words I usually don't think about the tires of my car unless I get a flat and then I will be exclusively focused on the tire of my car until I fix the flap. And then I don't think about the, flat, the tires anymore. And so what I find is when people have little parts that are algae and problems and pain, they need to focus on that part, those parts to figure out what's going on. What's the injury? What's the history? What's the need? What's the, what's the longing? Whatever. Um, and the goal being how do we resolve it and help that part sort of join the party and grow up and get out of the middle of the focus. All right? All right. Now, it's, it's kind of technical um, a little bit um, um, uh, I can't find the word um, grasping at straws to decide are there parts of parts is there a shame part and a anger part and some theories do that, I just kind of keep it general I can feel the parts of me that feel immature and I know they're immature and I'm aware of them and I want to A, be loving to them but also be challenging and not let them run the show, so As a general rule, I would say be aware of the inventory parts of you. Number two, if you're living with all of your focus about your inventory parts, that is too much self-focus. But it probably also means those parts aren't getting what they need to grow, which is love and limits. Okay? And then they run the show. Will you close us in prayer?
2: I'd love to. Let's thank John together, guys. One of the things that made this weekend fun was not just that we actually got to enjoy a an hotel together, but um, also it's fun to see all the faces that some of us don't know from um, four or five, six different churches. Isn't that cool? It's fun to get rid of it. So let me pray for us, and then uh, catch John afterwards if you like. Be sure to be out of your hotel room by 12:30, uh, and um, I'm sure you guys can catch enough of the uh, OU Texas game before the weekend gets away from us. Father, thank you for your love for us. Jesus, thank you that you care so much about our marriages, and thank you that you've given us just a little portal into understanding the gospel better this weekend. We pray that you would help us to metabolize what we've learned. Some of us feel a little overwhelmed. So much insight and information in two days is more than we can handle. And so would you give us good community groups, and would you bless John as he preaches uh, tomorrow morning and leads a group. Discipleship class and Would you help us to have safe spaces uh, As we talked about today To be able to process these things together May the body of Christ be the body of Christ And may uh, the wider body of Christ In Tulsa be a beautiful picture To our region Of uh, the safe space you're calling us to be together Thank you for John Thank you for Norma Thank you for their marriage And we pray you will bless him as he heads home. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you guys for being here. I'm so grateful for you.